You're listening to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach. Small business owners and farmers are protesting the green WTO and NAFTA are transnational forms of autocratic governance. You that is the world leader in North American free trade. Seattle has never seen anything like it. Mexican workers face threats of violence. Welcome back to Rethinking Trade, where we don't just talk about trade policy, we fight to change it. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined once again by our in-house trade expert, Lori Wallach. Lori, a lot of our listeners may have seen the New York Times piece a few weeks back entitled, Big Oil is in Trouble, Its Plan, Flood Africa with Plastic. What it reveals is that chemical and oil and gas companies who are facing growing opposition to plastic bags and other plastic goods that create a waste problem, including China cutting them off from plastic waste imports, they want to use Africa as a dumping ground. Their plan is to use Kenya as a lever to undermine African countries' laws protecting against plastic waste, and they are using the U.S.-Kenya trade deal negotiations to do this. This is sort of a classic example of how trade deals can chip away at or get rid of a country's domestic environmental regulations, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Can you give us all a bit of an introduction to this specific case and also how and why trade rules have this type of authority? I'm going to take the second question first, because the predicate to understanding the situation with Kenya and the U.S. free trade agreement that's being negotiated is to be aware that a lot of the contents of so-called trade agreements have nothing to do with trade, but rather that impose new limits on government regulatory authority on behind-the-border issues, like whether you can ban plastics waste or, say, no more use of single-use plastic bags or that create new rights or privileges for corporations, monopoly protections for pharmaceutical firms to charge high prices for medicines or rights for foreign investors to operate without meeting local laws. So those rules typically are enforced through a provision that's in most trade agreements that says the signatory country shall conform domestic laws, regulations, and administrative procedures to the terms of the agreement. That's the language in the WTO version. What that boils down to is you can have a country like Kenya, because here's the situation there, that has signed on to a multilateral environmental agreement called the Basel Convention that recently designated plastic waste as a hazardous waste that can be banned under that international agreement. You can ban the shipment across borders of that good as an environmental priority. And Kenya is a country that's a leader throughout Sub-Saharan Africa in establishing strong plastics wastes laws. So they don't allow single-use bags like a lot of U.S. states and cities, but also they have other policies. You can have that as your domestic national law. But then if in your trade agreement, stuck into some chapter, like the one where this probably would be, is something called technical barriers to trade. (laughs) It's just a set of standards that the big companies get wedged into trade agreements that get designated as a quote-unquote illegal trade barrier. So suddenly your domestic law is in violation with a so-called trade agreement, and your domestic law has nothing to do with trade. But you can face trade barriers, actual sanctions, 
against your real trade, against your exports as a developing country, you can have tariffs, taxes put on it for not changing your domestic law on something like an environmental protection. And that is what is at the heart of that New York Times expose. When word got out that the U.S. negotiators had been lobbied by some interest in oil and gas and the chemical industry to use the Kenya agreement to try and set a policy that would make Kenya reverse its toxic pollution rules with respect to plastics and therefore become open as a dumping ground for these companies' waste, but also you know, for the sale of petroleum-based products like single-use plastic bags. So that's, that is how something totally unrelated to trade that is a totally reasonable domestic environmental law could get sacked through closed-door trade negotiations. And in Kenya's case, I mean, you touched on this a bit. We're talking about pressure being applied before the ink touches the paper. There's also plenty of ways that companies can attack environmental regulations after a deal is signed, particularly through no discussion about trade deals and environmental regulations could be complete without bringing up investor state dispute settlement system, ISDS. How do these tactics work and how have they been used to attack environmental protections? Maybe you can just give us a little introduction to that. There are three ways that these trade agreements rules end up undermining domestic laws. One is just good old pressure. So in the negotiations like this, you have behind closed doors a industry lobbyist who is an official U.S. trade advisor. There are 500 official U.S. trade advisors with ties to corporations. There are a handful of unions, an even smaller handful of environmental groups, very few interests to counter the corporate interests pushing for deregulatory pro-polluter policies and trade agreements. And they just pressure the countries as they're negotiating, you better change blah, blah, law, or we won't do this trade agreement, or we'll cut off your access to the U.S. So that's one way it works. The second way it works is you actually do the negotiation. You jam in these kind of non-trade rules. A classic is, for instance, bad rules that got slipped into the, the revised NAFTA that create more obstacles for Mexico and Canada having good laws and genetically modified organisms, GMOs. So unrelated to trade per se, but consumer environmental protections. And then once they're in the agreement, they can be challenged from one country attacking the other in tribunals where if you don't get rid of that law, you face trade sanctions, border taxes on your actual trade, your exports, until you do. So, you know, a really ugly example of that is the U.S. um, took a case on behalf of big ag, agribusiness, to attack the European ban on artificial growth hormones in meat. They went to one of those tribunals, this one at the World Trade Organization. The rules are so slanted and the tribunals are so unfair. The WTO tribunal said, sorry, Europe, you ban these growth hormones, which are associated with various cancers, so that your farmers can't use them. But it's beyond what is allowed under the food standards of the WTO. So you can't keep this stuff out. And if you continue to do so, you have to pay. And the U.S. imposed over $200 million of sanctions on the European Union's exports to the U.S. of other stuff unrelated to meat. 
and did so for over a decade because they were trying to force the European Union to back down. Now, most countries backed down right away. The U.S. did it. So a variety of countries, Mexico and Canada, attacked our labeling of meat with respect to where it's grown, harvested, and slaughtered, the so-called country of origin laws. In the face of a billion dollars of potential future trade sanctions, we just caved and gutted the law. So that's one way. The other way is the investor state tribunals. And that is when a private interest, not just a government trying to enforce another government's commitments in a trade agreement, but a private entity can try and challenge a government elevated like it's its own government and extract cash for not meeting trade agreement rules. The bottom line of all of this is in Kenya, they're doing the right things on plastic pollution. And the U.S. should be cooperating with Kenya to promote those kind of environmental and health initiatives, not use a trade agreement to create a basically booby trap that's going to blow up laws unrelated to trade because some corporations get those provisions jammed into a trade agreement. Well, I guess that would bring us to our final question, which is one I'm sure listeners are asking as well, which is how do we reverse course? Uh, How can trade rules be written that not only prevent these attacks from happening in the first place, but enforce rules that protect environmental regulations and standards from the get-go? And are there any examples right now of those types of rules in action? So we have to think about this on two levels. The first is the Kenya agreement itself. The plastics issue is just one example of why the U.S. negotiating anything like our past trade agreements with the country of Kenya under any circumstances, but particularly right now, is a ridiculous idea. And there is no upside for development, for the environment, or if you look at it just nationally for U.S. jobs, for U.S. exports. But if you look at it on the flip side for what's going to happen in Kenya, it's counterproductive if we're trying to have this agreement either help workers or the environment in either country, or for that matter, build our foreign relations and reputation. If you see your member of Congress, or even better, next time you are near a computer, send them an email, make a call to make sure they know that you don't want this U.S.-Kenya agreement going forward. It's just not the right thing to be doing, probably at all, certainly not now. And the second thing is the model. Now, could there be a U.S.-Kenya agreement that includes trade that could be for people and promoting, improving health standards, environmental protection, human rights protections, of course. The problem is that's not the model we have. So with the renegotiation of the NAFTA, we took an agreement that was like 20 rungs below hell and we brought it up to the crust. (laughs) But that ain't no agreement. That's a good agreement. It's one that hopefully means we will, the new agreement means it will, there'll be less harm done by a NAFTA. If you want to actually have a good agreement, you need to actually start with what the goals are, which is how do you actually improve people's livelihoods? How do you use the agreement to set standards that companies have to meet in order to get the benefits of the agreement versus today's agreements, which put handcuffs on countries and tell them all the things they have to do for corporations. And that is a bigger discussion that is probably starting and will start perhaps after the election 
But for right now, I think the best thing to do is make sure your members of Congress know no U.S.-Kenya agreement under these circumstances, and then go to tradewatch.org and also rethinktrade.org and become part of the discussion about what a good trade agreement could look like. Because there is a way to do this right, and the only way we're going to get there is if we're all informed and fighting for it. Rethinking Trade is produced by Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. I would encourage you to visit RethinkTrade.org as well as TradeWatch.org to educate yourself and to find out how you can get involved in the work we're doing to fight for fairer and more equitable trade policies.